the Diary of a CTO podcast. Sharing the secrets of successful CTOs. Brought to you by Trimor, the home of technology recruitment. Hosted by Guy Bevington. Cool. So, Yinka, great to see you again. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Good to see you, mate. So, uh, very, very excited for today, Inca. I think um, today is a podcast that's been 10 years in the making on our relationship over the years that it's we've, been some uh, time, we've yes. known each other. Um, so by way of introduction, you are currently the lead technology architect at uh, CFC, underwriting, um, where you've been for a little over four years now. Is that right? It is. Yes, yes. Cool. So CFC, I mean, a phenomenal story, obviously, as a business goes, you know, very successful insurance company. Um Focusing particularly around cybersecurity and emerging risks, as yep. I understand it. And um, I'm sure we'll get into a little bit about your role and the great work you're doing there uh, momentarily. But you know, prior to CFC, you were or have been a, or very, had a very uh, successful career in um, insurance within other companies like Hiscox and yes. Exchanging, which I think is where we first met, actually. It was, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, clearly a wealth of experience to bring to bear today. So very keen to pick your brains and uh, hear a little bit more about your perspective and, uh, you know, uh, go from there. So um, but let's start at the beginning, I suppose, with, with you, your background, how you got into tech in the first place, um, if you'd be so kind, and then we'll, uh, we'll go from there. Wow, yeah, okay. Uh, I guess I got into tech when I was a very young child. I, I had a, uh, an Amstrad CPC-464. When I was uh, six years old, uh, and I remember my my mum going out and getting a um, one of the computer magazines, as they were then, um, that had uh, some. Uh, it had a text based uh, adventure that you could program in BASIC, uh, and so I started programming. It really was just copying what was in the magazine at the time, and it sort of it started then. Really, my love for for technology. Um, you know, I, I graduated through an Amiga five hundred. You know, doing a bit of assembler on that when I was a bit older. Um, uh, and it sort of snowballed from there. So at university, I ended up um, uh, doing a, a four-year uh, degree in, in computer science, a year in the industry. Uh, I worked for a company uh, called Homes, affiliated with the government. Um, and uh, I, I think they expected me to sit there and, and take some basic work and, and just get on with it. But I started innovating for them. So um, they would do things like produce a catalogue uh, and print it out. They send it to a printers uh, and they would deliver it to all these local authorities. So I came up with the idea of taking the original digital feed that they used to generate the catalogue and turning that into a touch-based touch interface that they could deploy into post offices across local authority areas and different wards. Uh, and um, I remember sort of sitting there with, uh, with uh, I guess, my boss at the time, uh, you know, the person that ran, ran the office, um, and walking through. He was, a, he was a very, very smart guy, um, and he saw the value in it and, and took it on, and I, they actually trialled it. Um, you know, obviously, then going back into, into university was was um, quite a change. So I quite liked being able to develop something and get it in front of people. So obviously, I had a traditional software development background, um, and then I jumped through different industries. Um, so network infrastructure management. I worked for a company called RiverSoft, uh, run by Phil T, who I think uh, you know owned and sold Tivoli uh, and started oh, RiverSoft, yeah. um, and that was good fun. I worked with some incredibly intelligent people there, um, and. So from there, I, I actually tried out some, uh, I left um, uh, Riversoft um, and tried retail. Um, so a, com a completely different sector. 
conscious I, choice to move into retail or just uh... it, it was actually I was, I was very interested in in their proposition they had a um a notion of being able to um count footfall coming into a store and then integrate with um at the time electronic point of sale systems and, okay. and start to try and give retailers a notion of sort of conversion rate uh, and then, you know, sort of product placement and that sort of thing. Right. Um, so each move was a, a conscious decision to expose myself to a different, um, a different type of business. Um, from from there, I actually moved into doing some consulting, um, which exposed me to um, wholesale banking and then insurance. Um, you know, and, uh, and and then obviously onto exchanging. Uh, and there, I worked in the uh, the general insurance software division, um, and I, I joined there um, at the point where I think the board were looking to sell off that part of the business because it wasn't, particularly, wasn't particularly, being particularly profitable. Right. Um, but we say we because there were a lot of people that were involved in the in, in the effort. We turned that around, and, and it turned into a, a you know a part of the business that was worth purportedly three hundred million by the time I I left and went to Hiscock. So we did a pretty good job, I think. Absolutely, um, yeah. I think you can chalk that one down to a good job. You know, and by that time, I was, I was, I was doing um, solution architecture. I think each move, I wanted a, a, a bigger problem, a broader piece of the puzzle to try and put together. Mm. Um, and so then it was a natural move to um, to his Cox, um, and then onto to Lloyd's, onto the first uh, the first blueprint. Yeah. Um, you know, and then ultimately onto onto CFC. But I actually joined CFC as the software development manager. Um, so it was a, it was quite a nice foray back into. Um, uh, a different type of technology leadership. Yeah. Um, architecture is very much a, a leadership type of role, but you're doing a lot more consulting, facilitating stakeholder management in, in a very specific type of type of uh, approach. Yeah. Software development management is is far more delivery focused. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. But also far more people focused if that's the approach you take because you're working through others all the time rather than sitting there and coding yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fantastic, great. Well, thank you for that as a, an overview. And um, it feels like, yeah, your, your career has been... Um, well, obviously, up until the point you were in insurance, was was there anything specifically about the insurance sector that sort of sparked your imagination and sort of has kept you within it over the last few years? So I think the the, the interesting thing for me was the contrast between, um, for example, uh, Morgan Stanley, so financial services, um, and I didn't know that much about insurance until I landed at exchanging. Um, so my, my initial role in exchanging was as a solution architect going in and working with uh, uh, insurance companies where exchanging was implementing one of their implementing one of their um, uh, general insurance uh, software packages uh, and I worked with uh, the person I ended up working with uh, at Lloyd's uh, Steve Holdstock um, uh, he was working for Accenture at the time um, and we built a friendship then, but uh, there was a there were a bunch of people uh, working with Steve who knew quite a bit about insurance. They'd been there for a while implementing, um, and I started to fall in love. I think with the complexity, yeah. it's quite easy to to look at um, uh, personal lines insurance, you know, house insurance, car insurance. You well, I hand over some money and hope that nothing bad happens, and that's it. But actually, behind the scenes, there is quite a lot of complexity. There are quite a lot of um, uh, complex business problems to be solved. And the interesting thing about insurance is it hasn't really changed that much in, in you know, a couple of hundred years. Uh, and technology is starting to have an impact. Mm. But I think there's so much more that can be done. Yeah. So much more that can yeah. be done. And I think it, now it's starting to get really exciting yes. and really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, historically, I guess a lot of insurance, you know, look at the Lloyd's market, it's obviously, you know, the whole story of where it came from. It's yeah. sort of steeped in heritage, isn't it, in tradition. And it's like you say, it's that sort of inter- Junction between technology and the, the sort of 
the heritage and how it comes together. But I, I would totally agree. I think the insure tech space has been one of the most interesting spaces in terms of just the the, the, the scale of transformation and the, the scope of challenges that you've got of what technology yeah. can actually do for the for the business. So I can see how it's definitely um, you know kept kept your interest over the last uh, last few years. Um, and CFC, I suppose, let's sort of go on to that. It, you know, particularly successful, almost sort of the poster child of actually what tech can do for an insurance business. Absolutely. It's a very technology-driven uh, organisation. But, um, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about your, your kind of journey with CSC so far and, you know, what, why it's been just a, such a phenomenal success in the last few years. I mean, CFC is, has been a successful company pretty much from the get-go. I mean, particularly the last sort of 10 or 15 years has been a, a really successful, really successful business. Um, from For me, uh, joining as the software dev manager at the time, there were... Uh, Normally, you could say four uh, development teams, uh, four scrum teams, so about 16 developers in total, I think. Um, and CFC was at the inflection point of really seizing the, uh, the ability to digitally transact business. So everybody th- talks about portals and things, but there was, a, there was a, uh, you know, a real push on, let's get a proper business-to-business API, but the whole thing is integrated. Um, and the, the, I guess the pivot to be really data-centric. Um, you know, CFC has probably the world's largest uh, collection of, uh, of claims data, cyber claims data. And so being able to actually start to use that data to do intelligent decision-making yeah. uh, and ease the underwriters' um, the underwriters uh, job so that actually they can, they can crank the handle more on business development and things like that um, was really, really interesting, really attractive. Um, and of course, uh, I've been there for four years we now have 13 scrum teams. Wow. Uh, we've grown massively. We, you know, there's a, there's a, a considerable data science element to everything that we do now. So we've got you know a cadre of data scientists and, and data engineers, um, and we really are moving towards um, far more zero touch business. Um, but equally, we haven't uh, gone down the path that I think many people go down, which is trying to change our customers' behaviour. Yeah. Right, so lots of companies go down the path of saying, no, 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 you must use our portal, you must use our form. Um, we're saying, no, it's, it's fine, you can, you can transact business in whichever way you like, um, and we're just creating efficiencies through uh, far more intelligent use of data behind the scenes. There's lots and lots of very clever things we do. Plus, we, um, uh, you know, we go beyond just, uh, let's say, intelligent classic uh, insurance processing. So we do, especially in the cyberspace, we do a lot of... Um, proactive um i'll call it claims mitigation but that sounds like it's for our benefit yeah. it's actually for the benefit of our customers because you get some sort of cyber incident happening it's the business interruption that costs you it costs you financially it costs you reputationally yeah. so we we do things such as uh we'll do outside in scanning to identify vulnerabilities i think we've identified uh about uh, we've identified vulnerabilities across about fifteen thousand of our our customers and got those closed off so actually protecting our customers before anything happens nice. um we also consume threat intel feeds uh and we build profiles of cyber criminal entities and we use uh, predictive analytics and heuristics to identify uh threat uh vectors and the likely the likely cyber criminal uh activist and then what we actually do is we proactively go after that that particular threat vector right. and we work with our customer to close that down and there right. have been incidents it's interesting you remember the film hackers right yeah yeah so 
Love I mean, movie. it's a brilliant film, and it, but hacking doesn't look like that. No, okay. Prodigy isn't playing, and it's not super action-packed. Yeah, but we have had incidents where our, our, our cyber threat analysis team have, have literally prevented an attack seconds before it took place. Really? Yeah, yeah. So it's really cool stuff. But it all happens all behind the scenes. All, all, our, all our customers have is a mobile app. Mm. It, it's very, very cool. So that's that's why I love CFC because we're we're really pushing the bounds and obviously uh, we're just going to keep going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you find being in tech that actually the fact it is cyber is makes it an extra layer of interest for you as a technology professional? Yes, um, you could say, for example, classic commercial insurance. Okay, cyber. And it's not the word cyber, but actually it's the um, I think it's the opportunity it, pre- it presents. Um, because there are there are so many things you can do. I think because it exists in the digital realm, you have access to more data, um, you know, more mechanisms for doing interesting things. Yeah. But also, then there's the that's almost the vanguard for being disruptive in more classical areas. So, for yeah. example, you know, DNA or management liability, right? So, could you consume a feed and then start understanding? perhaps sentiment or predicting sentiment or predicting activity so that you can then work with directors, for example, or, or companies to let them know that something is about to transpire and yeah. therefore maybe go out and get set about mitigating that and yeah. helping them. Yeah, so yeah. it's a vanguard for being able to be disruptive elsewhere, I think, which is, which is you know, so it, it's interesting because of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you, you kind of mentioned earlier that you feel it's it's kind of, you know, lots happened and, and clearly, like I say, CFC doing some phenomenal work, but it's kind of just getting exciting now. Mm. So where do you feel, you know, the, the, the future lies? What, what's sort of the next big thing, do you think? I mean, when you look at the acceleration of technology uh, in terms of the adoption of it, the use of it, the misuse of it, um, you know, the, the interesting thing is that I, I had a question uh, the other day from, from somebody that they were saying, well, if somebody takes out a cyber policy and then a new piece of malware or a new threat develops after the policy's been written. Are they protected for that? And the answer is, well, yes, that's the point of the policy. But of course, what that means is when you look at, uh, and you know, if you look at generative AI, for example, now that presents a whole world of, of problems for, you know, uh, well, for copyright, um, you know, legal problems, but also cyber, you know, cybersecurity. Um, you look at uh, Web3, you know, yes, okay, at the moment it, it, it's going through I think a, a natural point of inflection and maturation where it's a case, okay, it's meant to be distributed and democratized. So how can a centralized, uh, you know, authority govern it or, yeah. you know, apply regulation? But something has to, ha- has to happen in order to actually allow that technology to, to flourish. Um, but equally, then you look at it and go, okay, if, it, if it's completely distributed, that's a huge attack surface. But also it's not because it's meant to be super secure. So yeah, understanding yeah. that... Uh, and then trying to to equate it to um, something similar that, that has been insured before, so you may c- can perhaps provide insurance in that space. Yeah. I think it's going to be quite an interesting, quite yeah. interesting journey for the insurance industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just hearing that now is just super complex. Like I say, there's, I guess the theme throughout all of your career has been the complexity of the problem yeah. and what you found very interesting. And yeah, but it'd be a super complex uh, problem to solve. But uh, yeah, food for thought. Um, so interesting, you mentioned earlier about you, you kind of started as a dev manager, then moved back into uh, technical um, architecture. Um, when we obviously speak to candidates, very often we'll see this sort of quite well-trodden path of you know starting as an engineer and then maybe moving into a technical 
sort of architect role or Susan's architect role and then maybe moving into management and never necessarily going back the other way. But you've obviously taken that conscious decision, like I say, to maybe get more uh, closer to the business and um, to talk to you a little bit about your yeah your thought process about you know what why you chose to go back into that space. So I think there, so for quite a bit of my career, I was a call it permi a permanent member of staff. Um, and so the notion of doing what's best for the business at times sat secondary to what's best for me. And uh, I had the opportunity to go contracting. Um, and obviously to go contracting, you start up your own business. Um, and I still run businesses now. Uh, and, and I didn't realize how much freedom in terms of mindset and, and the entrepreneurial spirit that, that kind of flourishes when you, you know, you're there handing your invoice in, but the reputation of your business is the most important thing. And sometimes you find you're doing what's best for the business, even though you really don't want to be sitting there at 11 p.m. sorting out invoices, making sure that actually you've finished off the relevant piece of work for, for one of your clients. And I actually quite liked that mindset. Um, and so I started trying to apply that to to my everyday work. Obviously, I'm, a, I'm back in, a, in a, a permanent position, but I'll turn my hand to whichever role is most beneficial to the business at the time. Mm. Um, and for CFC, it was software dev manager working um, with the CTO, uh, Jonathan Fletcher. Um, and, you know, for a couple of years, that was the most beneficial role I could perform. Mm. Um, you know, the first thing I set about doing was trying to understand the sort of design and architecture process that, that everybody went through, and I, I, I augmented and bolstered that. Um, but obviously, as we started to build more teams, um, you get to a point where the conversation was, I, I can continue managing the developers, but we really need to get a, you know, you know, a bit further out in terms of architecture and really understanding where, you know, where we're going, just making a bit more concrete. And so the natural thing was to, to, to then move to that role and, and, you know, get somebody else in to, to, to pick up the software dev uh, management side of things. Fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, it makes, makes a lot of sense. And, uh, you know, one of the things I've always been, give you a big head now, one of the things I've always been impressed with throughout our relationship was, you know, that you are uh, incredibly articulate and I can, you know, obviously very client-facing and I can see... The, the skill of how you, you know, are able to interface between technical and non-technical stakeholders, and you know, you just you just get it from a business point of view. You know, you kind of see the the, the bigger picture and the and the strategy, and you're very good at articulating that, which I think is a, a particularly uh, strong skill for a you know technology leader. Um, so, is that a piece that you enjoy? The kind of you know the, the communication, the strategy, the articulation of of you know uh, tech uh, to the business. I do, I do. Um, the interesting thing there is, is, and, and I won't be able to put my head out the door now, um, but the interesting thing there is that, you know, message sent and message received are never the same. Um, uh, you know, each conversation, especially with, um, uh, I'll say any stakeholder actually, um, because it, it works in, in all directions, um, you always walk away having learned something new uh, about yourself, but also about the, the rest of the audience. Um, you know, I, I often find uh, being a, a technology person and enjoying technology, if I get a, a bit impassioned, I'll, I'll get carried away and I'll dive off into the technical detail and then I'll suddenly realise that I may have lost some of the, uh, you know, the, the more key stakeholders. Um, you know, and oftentimes, some, you know, there, there's an element of carrying too much, um, uh, carrying too many assumptions into the room. Um, I'm definitely guilty at times of, of assuming that 
talking to a bunch of software engineers, they'll just get this because it's obviously this pattern X, Y, Z, and you start yeah. talking to them, and then you realize, oh dear, I've, I've, I've lost people. Yeah. Um, so it's really about sort of seeing that and then going back and having another go. And that's what I really enjoy. Um, yeah. You know, and also when it goes well, you know, that's a really good feeling. Yes. You know, when, you, when you get yeah. a good outcome. Yeah. Um, because getting people aligned, uh, and often, oftentimes I think for, for technology leaders, that's the hardest thing. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to say, look, we're going over there. Um, that sounds simple, but you have to say that in eight different languages to, you know, 16 different audiences. Um, you know, and most of the time, it's 50% of the time, if you get it right, you've done well. Um, so I, I enjoy that aspect of, of the, the roles that I've held. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think it, it transcends outside of technology alone, but winning, winning hearts and minds and, and taking people on that journey um, yeah, it's certainly a skill not to be uh, not to be underestimated as a as yeah. a leader. Um, but let's talk a little bit about that and your 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 leadership style. So throughout your career, you've been both a people leader, like I say, as a software development manager, but then also in a technical leadership capacity. Um, so what do you feel if you can kind of distill it down to it's not some bolts? What do you feel are the the most valuable traits of a of a, of a great leader, technology leader? So, I mean, I. I'd say empathy first, um, because if you can't empathize with the people you're leading, then you'll never be able to communicate well with them because you won't understand what's important to them because extrinsic motivation is easy, right? Here's a lovely big fat piece of, you know, the pot of gold or whatever, and it's kind of like that, that's a carrot. But actually understanding what motivates people intrinsically and being able to explain why what we're doing is important, why we're moving in this direction um, is, I, I think, key. It also elicits... Um, freer converse, conversation because people are then confident that they can talk to you about the things that are bothering them or that they don't like something, which means you can you can help navigate those you know navigate those waters, navigate those conversations more easily. Um, consistency, which is really hard. Um, when I yeah, struggle with that one, <laughs> <laughs> I consistently I, struggle with consistency. Uh, it's uh, you know it's, it's, it's standing up and talking talking to a bunch of people. I, I do this sort of. I'll say normally once a month we have a town hall. I'll probably get up there and talk about something. Um, you have to pitch it to a level where the, you know an entire department, you know, a crowd of a hundred people can understand. Um, you know, and at times you might get a question, um, and it, it, the questions can vary because it, you, you don't know what's going to come at you, right? Um, and I would like to think that people feel they can ask me anything, and I'll be balanced. But sometimes you get a question, you think, "Oh my God, how de- what the." But then reacting to that means you're not being consistent and you're not being honest with yourself because the, the, the question you should ask yourself is what do you really want? You know, where do you really want to, to, to get to? Um, so consistency is really important. And that's, that's consistency in everything as well in terms of if you need to have a, uh, you know, a, say a, an influencing conversation with a senior stakeholder, then being consistent there is really key. Um, you know, and then I also think um, there's an element of, um, and I think it's, it's a thing that I personally struggle with, which is discipline, right? Uh, so it's different to consistency. Consistency is a, is a, is a, a, an outward thing, but discipline is an internal thing. Um, I, I find this a lot. I mean, I still do side projects for myself, right? Um, so one of my dreams is to, is to write the most awesome uh, space game, an epic space game. And I've started this eight times. And each time I get to, I get to simulating procedurally generated planets and star systems, and I just go off down this rabbit hole of, of trying to do that. that. That will not add anything to the end, the end project. I'll get stuck, right? 
so the discipline of saying, no, 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 that's not what. So that's an example, right? Um, so I think, I think discipline is absolutely key for, for technology leaders. Um, you know, I've been quite lucky. Um, the technology leaders that I've worked, worked with and worked for, um, I think to a person, they've all exhibited a lot of those traits um, really well. You know, lots and lots of empathy, lots of emotional intelligence, lots of consistency and incredible amounts of discipline. Cool. Uh, yeah, I, I would totally agree. I think uh, discipline is one of those things. I think <laughs> like, I agree that consistency is an external thing, discipline is an internal thing, but they do go hand in hand, don't they, in, yeah. in many ways. And having that, we all go through those periods, well, I certainly do, you know, peaks and troughs of, of, of weeks where you feel absolutely on it, really disciplined every day, you know, you're doing the right things. And then you look back like three weeks later and you're like, Jesus, where did, what happened there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. When did that die down? And, um, I think it's it, the key thing about being a good leader is sort of creating that, irrespective of whatever's going on in the external world, whether things are going well, you know, good, bad, or indifferent, it's still just consistently doing the right things and, and like I say, having the discipline to, to keep turning up and, um, you know, uh, yeah, just keep keep moving forward, basically. Yep. Um, so yeah, I would agree with that, absolutely. Um, cool, so we've spoken a little bit about, uh, well, you, you sort of mentioned earlier on about, you know, the rise of... Um, Chat GPT, AI, large language models. Um, what do you What are you most excited about now as a technologist? In terms of what are some of the, the kind of really exciting uh, trends you're seeing in the market? And um, yeah, talk us through a little bit about that. You're in beer now because I didn't say Chat GPT. You did. Oh, I, really? I said oh, generative right, okay. AI. I skirted that one nicely. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> so <I> can do. <laughs> but yes. Um, so I, I, I I'll preface what I'm about, I'm about to say with. Um, the, technolo- the technologies that have uh, a broad social impact, I think, are really interesting. Um, now, that doesn't mean to say that they are um, super revolutionary or, or they've got mass adoption yet or anything like that. But I'll, you know, I think it's the, the technologies that have had a broad social impact. So I mentioned it before. I think I think um, Web three, and particularly crypto, even though at the moment it's in a in a in a bumpy spot, because of the social impact it's having in terms of people that perhaps didn't have access or uh, you know to to the the ability to to transact um, or, or to gain uh, real wealth, um, regardless of whether some people think some of it is snake oil or not. You know the bottom line is that that I think crypto has had a, a significant social impact, um, and I think it's also having an impact um, sort of in a um, let's say a corporate or capitalist sense in terms of actually some of those institutions sort of doing a double take and, and wondering what they should be doing differently. Um, and that doesn't mean to say that I'm, a, I'm some sort of anti-disestablementarian. I don't want to tear anything down, but I just think that's a really interesting technology. And it will be interesting, I think, over the next sort of six to 18 months to see where it goes. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not, I, whether the SEC's approach to trying to bring some regulation in is correct or, or not is, is not for me to say. But I think if, if some... You know, perhaps if the, the Web3 community can come together and work out how they can bring in some regulation that is recognized yeah. uh, to allow the, te- the technology to stabilize and then to flourish, I think, I think something quite special can happen there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's one. Um, and I do think, um, I, I think generative AI is, is the superhero and supervillain of the tech industry at the moment. Mm. Um, you know, Absolutely. there's a bit of hype. Um, you know, we, we at CFC, we've been looking at a lot of this stuff, right? Um, but I do think that, you know, you've seen examples of, you know, some of the uh, the, the um, text-to-image generation 
Um, you know, some of the, the, the firms get into a bit of spot of bother saying they plagiarised because they've t- trained their models on, on, you know, loads of stock photos they should have had access to, blah, 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 yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah. But I think um, when you... It's quite interesting because there are quite a few people when you talk about things like ChatGPT, they have the... I'm like, what? what, what, what what's, the, what's that? You know, where have you been? But, you know, it's a bit, there is still a... It, it's kind of in tech... But it's not, because you can also see a lot of other people making making use of that technology. Yeah. And I think there are um, definitely um, opportunities for um, people outside the technology industry to to gain huge benefit from from that technology. But equally, I think, much like Web three crypto, there's there's a bit of okay, ethically, what what should we be doing here, um, especially with um, you know, the notion of people think it's it's almost like a, a computer program. It's deterministic, right? You ask it a question, it'll give you the same answer every single time. That's not true. No, um, certainly not. You know, and I, I, I don't know if you heard the, the story of, I think it was a, a, a lawyer in the US who basically asked ChatGPT uh, a bunch of questions and it cited all of these cases and he walked into the court and he, he, he delivered this material and it had just been made up. Hallucinated. Yeah. Um, so I think people not having an understanding that that could happen... Uh, and not using the the tool appropriately uh, could be damaging, but I think it's a really interesting, exciting space. Um, you know, and it, it's it feels like it's come out of nowhere, but we know it hasn't. It's been around for quite some time. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, and and again, things like um, you know, dev tooling. Um, you know, so I I used to uh, play a, a tabletop uh, uh, role playing game uh, called uh, Shadowrun. Um, right. uh, it was really cool when I was a kid. I mean, there now, <laughs> uh, but uh, in that they had a, a, a character, a class of character called the Decker. So they would jack into the Matrix, yes, and Chowski siblings, you know, the Wachowski siblings, yes. Um, but they would then have these smart frames, for which they would then basically ask to go off and do do tasks for them, and they were they were quasi intelligent. And you, you kind of go, it's kind of almost where we are. I mean, we're, obviously we're not we're not shoving needles into the back of our heads or anything like that and jacking into a Matrix, but we're get we're getting to the point where we almost have um, little digital robots that can intelligently go off and do tasks for us, and I think that that's going to be really interesting from a um, uh, a software development perspective, because then does that mean that software developers suddenly have to grapple with being delegators and bigger thinkers, yes, right, rather than yes. rather than focusing on the small tiny task in front of them, because something will handle that for them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that's really interesting. How do you feel? That's a really great point because it's definitely a hot topic at the moment of you know how uh, these large language models and Gen AI is, is impacting um, the role of a software engineer in terms of day to day how they yeah. do it, but also their their future prospects and you know and obviously I had this conversation um, last night actually at a roundtable and we were talking about you know is there actually a case at the moment uh, if you're a startup kind of bootstrap business to pay for a junior developer to be developer to be sat there when actually the output of a junior developer at this point in time based on the level of experience probably could quite easily be replicated using something like chat gpt it's only obviously at a certain level that you kind of develop those skills around you know um context i suppose when it's not the not, not the be all and end all but how do you see the impact of gen ai on the software engineering role and um yeah what part do you think it will moving forward so I, I find that really interesting as, as a as a human race we look to replace humans mm. whereas we do the work but we don't focus on um, 
making the fruits of human labor better, right? So I would say you still need a junior developer sat there, right? But then what happens is the experienced developer who kind of gets how to get the, the, you know, the, the generative side of things working really well, because let's be honest, if you delegate to you know, a coding LLM and you, you do it badly, you get a bad output. And actually, if you're a junior developer and you do it badly, you're going to spend ages trying to work out what's happened. In fact, you probably you probably then be a net negative producing developer. Mm. So actually, I think you do need junior developers, and you do need the you could have the coding LLM with an experienced developer cutting the path and showing that less experienced developer how to actually get the best out of it. Mm. Um, because really, it, it's kind of like you know will have augmented developers, right? Yeah. It's all, it's, so I would say coding LLMs are almost like sort of cyber prosthetics mm. for developers, right? It should make them better, more efficient, yes. um, able to grapple with bigger problems, yeah. right? So rather than sort of go, oh, man, I've got to do all the scaffolding for this microservice, and then I've got to kind of sort out the data, and blah, blah, blah. What they can say is, give me the scaffolding for the thing, and the, the LLM just goes off and starts building that stuff. Or, you know, a developer writes... Uh, the key business logic um, and effectively ask the LLM to knock up a set of behavioral tests that prove that that logic is correct based on some requirements. Yeah. You know, suddenly then what you've got is you've, you've almost got a developer that's got eight arms mm. and four brains. And I yeah. think that's where we should be thinking rather than how can we get rid of people? Totally. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, you know, I think the, the mindset of uh, chat GPT is is you know disrupting the system or ruining the system I think is you know, it's, it's, it's flawed because at the end of the day we're not going to go backwards from this point from where we are you know this yeah. is the new the new norm I guess and we're all interfacing this technology and working out how to, to best use it but, but I do agree I think you know that moving forward the the people that are best able to query it work with it and, and almost use it as a as a tool like you say to be able to take on actually bigger problems and and uh, you know, kind of create those efficiencies. I think will be the ones that, yeah, it's akin to the, the everyone always talks about the industrial revolution and when people used to go yeah. around and like smashing up all the machines in factories because they were worried that you know um, they were going to be out of a job. And it's exactly the same thing. I think you know, you kind of fall into that mindset of Jesus. This, I mean, there's, there's certain industries out there. Let's face it, where I probably would be a bit worried. Like if I was in law, for instance, like and that was an example of somebody that clearly didn't do their due diligence. But yeah. generally speaking, yeah, when you look at actually what the the, the, the sort of day-to-day duties of a, a solicitor or a lawyer would have been historically is to have that knowledge and understand where to draw upon the, the right different cases to you know, prove your point. And, and obviously, ChatGPT literally can do all of that in a, in a, a millisecond. Um, but to your point of what you said about that guy who clearly hadn't um, you know, done his due diligence, it's about what do you then do with that information and, you know, yeah. still the... You need that context around it as to how you can apply it to the real world. Um, but, again, but again, if you think about if you think about the law law perspective, right? So let's ignore the hallucination bit for a second, because um, I, I think we're looking at the technology in terms of its current form, which is I, I think still not as mature as it needs to be. But it, it's you know it's, it's evolving all the time. Just like a developer, you could say, well, okay, if you've got a, a barrister who's trying to build a case, if there was an LLM that was effectively understanding the parameters of the of the case the parameters of the argument and then going and pulling that material together and actually structuring an argument to be refined by the barrister 
Mm. That would be incredibly valuable because they yeah. do it really quickly, which means you might get higher quality, more powerful, more punchy arguments. You know, the courtroom would be hilarious, I reckon. But, you know, so it, I think about it like that. It's the same as at the moment we think about co-pilot for developers and then they've got to ask it a question or they've got to write a comment and it goes and does a thing. But it could get to the point where actually you might have you know, a particular LLM that's, that's all about writing behavioral tests, another one that's all about um, uh, structuring deployments, right? And they're running in the background, creating content that you can go and review later rather than it being a thing that the, where, where the engineer is having to inform it all the time. It's watching yeah. what you're doing and, and responding to it. it. It's like a partner, right? Yeah. So the technology is going to move in that direction, I think, where it starts to, um, it starts to understand the behaviors and in terms of it, and by that what I mean is you're typing stuff in, so that's all it's really seeing, but your your behaviours and it's responding to what you're doing and then trying to help. Yes. I think that's when it'll start to become really, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I agree. I like your term augmented um you know, developers. I think that's uh, it's a very good way of describing it and hopefully that's kind of where we, we all get to. Um but um but yeah, cool. Okay, well let's let's talk a bit about um, I guess your uh, journey as a leader and, you know, times when things have gone wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the lessons we all learn when uh, we, we come against these challenges. So what would you say have been your, your kind of greatest challenges you've experienced as a tech leader? And, yeah, how have you overcome those? So I think the greatest challenges as a tech leader has nothing to do with technology. It's always people. Um, so, and the, the interesting thing is individuals, you know, if you're, if you're talking to somebody or, or dealing with them one-on-one, that's quite easy. Um, and when I say easy, I mean easier, talk comparative. Um, when you've got groups of people and, and it's hearts and minds and, 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 you know, emotions are running high, that's when it's really, really difficult. Um, so uh, yeah, as an example, um, uh, quite a while back, I, I, I had a, a couple of, couple of teams um, and I, I, they needed uh, re- reconfiguring because the the uh, experience was imbalanced. It was only one team. The other team needed some of that experience. And um, like I said before, I walk into a room with assumptions, right? So I'm walking into this room thinking, well, this is obvious. I mean, no, no, nobody really cares, right? You're sitting in the same office. You're probably going to move two meters away. It's not going to be a big deal. Um, and I kind of gave the team effectively the instructions like guys we need blah 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 we need to you know reconfigure experience balance such and such do you want some help or should i just go away and leave you to it and like, oh, go away and leave us to it it's fine came back after an hour nothing two hours later came back and they're all sitting around a table and they'd done nothing as in they they talked a lot i think i think they'd done a lot of talking i think they'd got quite emotional about it you know people working with their best mates and it all felt like a family and all those things which i failed to pick up on and and even then walking into the room, I failed to pick up on it. And so I went, guys, okay, look, I'm just going to help you here. And I just reconfigured the teams. I went, there we go. And the, the avalanche of emotion was, in hindsight now, I look back on it and I think, oh, that was horrific. How could I do that to, to a bunch of people? You know, they got upset, people were crying. Really? That's how bad it was. Oh, it was terrible, terrible. Um, you know, and I mean, obviously afterwards... I, I apologise, guys. I didn't realise that you were so, you know, get, get so emotional about this, you know. Mm. And, and, I, and I, and I, I didn't even deliver the "I'll help you" in a particularly kind way. So, oh Christ! After three hours, come on, guys, I'll just help you. Here we go. We're done. Right, move on. Um, 
So, uh, you know, that, that was quite an eye-opener. And I pay much more attention to, uh, you know, the temperature in the room and, and try and empathise with people way more and ask questions before delivering context yeah. to just try and understand where people are because you can't really convey context if, you, if you're unaware of the vocabulary that you need to use in order to bring people along on that journey because if, if they're already emotional, no, nothing's going to go in. Um, so, yeah, that, that, you know, that's an example of something going wrong. Um, you know, I am... Um, uh, I, I've uh, at times, as I said, I you know I because I love technology so much. I've I've got kind of really impassioned about a thing, and then structured a brilliant, brilliant deck. I think this is going to be amazing, right? Senior stakeholders are going to love this, and after the first slide, I've lost them. This is <laughs> too detailed, too much tech. Right. You know, I've got it. I've, I've, I'm, you could almost say that PowerPoint will basically give that to a developer and then go develop it. That's that's terrible. That's not going to work, right? Um, so. Uh, it's always about learning, but I think um, the hardest thing, the thing where you know the propensity for something to go wrong, it's always really around people yeah. and communication. Um, you know, in terms of, uh, I guess, other examples, um, I, I once had a um, this is quite a while back. I was, I was sort of earlier in my career. I had a, um, a really great boss. Um, and uh, he sent out a, an email saying he wanted this thing to happen, and, and he's the boss. It's, you know, it's his. And, I, and I flicked off a response, uh, you know, a reply all, um, which basically means I'd, I'd kind of stood up and started having a debate with him in, in, a, in a public room. Um, so all of the people that you know were behind me that I was leading, you know, they could see the point of what I was trying to say, mm. but actually, probably a conversation. For a closed room, <laughs> Not um, yeah. yeah, and of course, what that did was that started a, a bit of a well. The software engineers are absolutely behind because they want to do this, um, you know. And then you've kind of got sort of some of the other business people saying, "Yeah, but that's crazy," you know. And so suddenly you've got friction in the company, which is detracting from the pace and the value that we can deliver. Um, so all of those things you learn, those things as you, as you go along. Um, so you know, I, I would say if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong, and. For me, it usually does. So, <laughs> yeah, but they're all all learning curves, eh? Well, that, that's. I mean, the thing is, if you if you if you, you know, if you if you blunder into something, um, which is absolutely okay as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, it is then your responsibility to learn something from it, um, you know, and then do your best to make sure it doesn't happen again. Yeah. It doesn't mean to say it won't, yeah. but at least you'll see it happening. Yeah, and that actually, awareness. It's, yeah. it's quite interesting when you see somebody else going through that, and you can see that on their face, they're they're thinking. Oh no, it's happening again, mm. you know. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I can resonate with a few though. Certainly the uh, the email thread. Uh, oh. You know, n uh, that's something I've I've learned a long time ago is never deliver anything remotely emotional via an email because you know the the, the we did an interesting exercise actually um, a while ago where sort of read out uh, a series of. Um, <laughs> No, sent a series of, of emails to different people in the business and they all had to infer by the title of the email what they thought it was about, you know, whether it was good, bad, were they in trouble, and so on and so forth. And they were quite generic, you know, sort of um, emails, but it was unbelievable the difference in just the different perspective of those people and how they looked at those emails as yeah. what they internalised and what they took away from it. And from that onwards, I've, I've never, ever tried to deliver anything 
because I think that the you know the written word can be so easily misinterpreted you know, oh, in, yeah. in, in, a, in a passive aggressive or just downright aggressive way, even though you don't necessarily mean it. So um, yeah, I can I can fully empathise with that one. And um, the point that you made about the teams, I think, was also quite an interesting one as well. And do you think a part of that was uh, also as a leader, sometimes you know we we can be a little bit sort of too deterministic and and often give people the answer you know because as a leader again we're sort of expected sometimes to know all the answers and just go look guys this this is the way you do it and so on and so forth now actually i think it was something you said um a while ago that stuck with me but you know as a leader it's very important to over communicate the vision but under communicate the, the tactics yes and in that scenario i guess that's a classic example of what you spoke about there where you're sort of coming in and giving the answer but actually yeah. there's a lot more value and power in them having the autonomy and coming up with a solution themselves. And sometimes it's awareness, right? You know, you can be impatient because, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a leader, there's going to be somebody that you, you report to or that you're, you're, you know, you're responsible to, for, uh, to, towards. So you end up in a position where you might have some impatience. And actually the self-awareness to spot that and go, okay, I am really impatient here, but actually, I, you know, I, I can't just walk in and say, right, build the bridge this way and build it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so there, there is a bit of that. I mean, uh, back to the email thing. I, um, so I have a one-minute hold on any emails I send. That gives, <laughs> that gives me an opportunity to go, nope, that was wrong. I, I'm going I'm to withdraw that. Abraham Lincoln did the same thing, you know. Yeah. Obviously not in, not in uh, emails, yeah. 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 But, uh, yeah, yeah, I think it's, that's a very wise thing. I actually have similarly introduced that. It's not a minute, it's about 10 seconds, but it's usually long enough for me to... Uh, <laughs> yeah. And also then the three email rule. So if you, send me, if you send me an email yeah. and I send you a reply... And it, and it gets past the one minute hold, uh, and then you send me another email that invites further conversation. Then I'll just ping you and say, "Hey, let, let's let's have a chat on a right, yeah, phone yeah. call or a meeting." Because it probably easier. needs to be yeah. spoken about rather than because yeah. that. that email ping pong. Yeah. You know, eventually, what will then happen is one of us will forward it to somebody else with probably a one liner saying, "FYI." Can you just get this done? And that poor person that has to read through forty-seven emails to try and work out what it is they actually need to do. That's a very good point, actually. Just from a yeah, a logic and sense point of view, I never thought about that. But yeah, it's a good shout. Cool, awesome. Well, Inca, really, really enjoyed the chat today. Um, as always, it's fantastic spending an hour chatting to you and, and hearing your uh, your thoughts and the pearls of wisdom that uh, emanate from your uh, your mind. But um, I like to end every uh, episode of the podcast with the same question, which you, you may or may not know by now, but essentially it's, you know, what is, if there's one favourite piece of advice that you've had over the years that you've either you know, had given to you or you've imparted on somebody else, um, you know, what, what would that be for you? So I, so I worked, I worked with a guy, with a guy, um, uh, quite a while ago, I was a junior software, software developer, um, and... Um, one of the things he spotted was, you know, whilst I was pretty good at what I was doing, um, I would listen to uh, requirements, you know, to what needed to be done, and then I'd just jump on it and get it done. I'd get it done phenomenally quickly, um, but I wouldn't ask any questions. You know, I'd, I'd assume that I understood what the other person was saying, hence the whole message sent, message received. Um, and his advice to me was, listen, you know, when, when somebody asks you to do something, they give you some requirements, whatever it is, you know, it, it could sound really simple. Ask questions. Ask questions. And then when you think you know, ask some more questions. Mm. Don't be annoying, obviously, but but just try and unpack what it is the person's really trying to get at. Mm. What outcome do they want? Which is kind of the start of, of, of empathy. But that's what yeah. that, that was the advice. Just keep asking questions. Be curious. 
Brilliant. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. And again, I think that's a great piece of advice that transcends, um, you know, it's certainly very applicable within recruitment. You know, it's the first thing I would always, everybody thinks, you know, within any form of sales-based industry, it's about, yes. you know, being articulate, having the gift of the gab, persuading people to do things. And I'm always like, no, it's totally the opposite. It's like, you know, you sit there and listen because you can't sell or advise anybody on anything unless you fully understand the situation. So 100%. usually before you start speaking, I think there's probably about four or five other questions I need to ask here before I jump into things. And uh, yeah, I totally, totally would agree with you on that front. Uh, awesome. Well, look, thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having and, me. And uh, no worries at all. And uh, yeah, wish you all the very uh, very best with your, uh, your, your future endeavours at CFC. I'm sure you guys will continue to go from strength to strength. Thank you very uh, much, Guy. with you in the team. And, um, yeah, look forward to speaking soon. Awesome. Cheers, mate. Bye for now.